Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Are we ready? Hello, my name's Dr. Matt Hannon. And I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford, and welcome to Local Zero. This is episode one. We're going to be spending the next year focused on planet Earth's most urgent question, and that is, what can we all do very practically about climate change? So in this first show, we'll set out the scope of the Local Zero pod series, what we hope to cover over the next year, and all our episodes leading up to Glasgow's COP26 next November. Joining us shortly will be Professor David Ray, leading expert in carbon management and education at the University of Edinburgh. And he tells us about how COP26 in Glasgow is the most important gathering of its kind ever. I think it will set the future of our climate for decades to come, probably centuries. So we cannot afford to get it wrong. After that, we'll hear a bit about the science behind climate action when we're joined by Renee Van Diemen from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC for short. Strong scientific evidence should really be the basis of all decision making. And that's what the IPCC provides, that scientific assessment that's rooted in the underlying literature about what we know about climate change and what we can do about it. And we're also joined by Sam Gardner. He's the lead for climate change and sustainability at Scottish Power and he's chair of the Edinburgh Climate Commission. He says those with the most power, the greatest responsibility. The transition that's needed requires leadership from certain sectors and in particular the public sector from government, from the Scottish government, from the UK government and from local government has to be able to put in place the pathways that enable behaviour change and incentivise investment and innovation in new technologies. But first, we need to explain a bit more about what the Local Zero podcast is and what we're setting out to achieve over the course of this series. Becky and I are both academics at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. We work on how government and industry can best accelerate a net zero transition across the whole energy sector. We both live in Glasgow, and next year it's set to become the centre of the universe on climate change issues. And that's when the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26 for short, lands here next November. And over the course of this series and the next year, we're going to hear from dozens of the country's brightest minds who are working at the cutting edge of these issues. We also have with us on hand for every episode, our researcher, reporter and master of all trades, Fraser Stewart. Yep. Thanks, Matt. I'll be on hand to provide some of the research background and some of the the perspectives from people on the ground, the people whose lives these 
decisions and these solutions affect directly. We'll be trying to keep the conversation grounded and trying to keep a real-world perspective. Thanks, Fraser. And clearly, we're going to be looking forward to COP26 and to what the UK needs to do. But before we look forward, I thought we could start by looking back, because today's my birthday. Happy Happy birthday, birthday, baby! (laughs) 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 Thanks, team. Um, And so I've been looking back a little bit just to see how things have changed in my short 38 years on this planet. So I've got a little quiz for you. I'd like to say thank you to Our World in Data that's powered by the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford for all their amazing graphs and charts that I've completely uh, uh, ripped the knowledge from for this little quiz. Um, So first of all, I thought I'd ask you if you know how many people are alive on the planet today. Right. I'm, yeah, I'm 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 teaching on this. It's I think it's seven billion. It's a, yeah. You're very close, just over seven and a half billion. I, I so what about in? Nine. I nearly said nine, just just half a billion, billion out. Just half a billion out. Yeah. <laughs> what What about in 1982? Fraser, you go on. Four and a half. Five, oh my gosh! Four spot and on. Four and a half. Good job. Good job. Yeah. All right. So let's think about what that means in terms of energy use. For those who really understand energy, this is primary energy consumption. So the amount of energy that we're producing that goes into the energy system. So today, the world's primary energy consumption is 159,000 terawatt hours. I have no scale of reference for that, but it sounds a lot. <laughs> it's not just population difference. It's more intense now as well, right? So I, what did you say, Becky? 159,000? Yes. Wow. Right. Maybe, um, Matt, on your... 100? 100,000? 50. If you average your answers, you'll be about there. It's 82,000 terawatt hours. Right. So it's, it's roughly doubled. It's roughly doubled, but that change hasn't happened uniformly across the world. So in Europe, we've gone from 19,000 terawatt hours to 23,000 terawatt hours. So fairly, fairly similar, even though it's quite a lo- long time. Right. Countries like but, China, India. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Asia Pacific's where it's all been happening. It's had a five-fold increase from 14,000 up to 72,000. Wow. I believe it. Mm-hmm. And even so, what we're still not accounting for in the figures today is that regions like Africa have still got very, very low consumption, even though their population is very significant. So, so what, is that Fraser one, Matt one? I, I've lost, I've lost track already. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were a team, Matt. <laughs> as long as I'm winning, I'm okay with this. <laughs> All right. There's so no we've, talk- team, Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've talked about energy. Now let's think about what that means in terms of carbon dioxide. This is the one that, uh, that I think is, is absolutely critical. So in the world, Now, actually not even now, this is two years ago in 2018, there were 1.6 trillion tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere. What do you think that was in 1982? I mean, might make sense for me if we kind of halve that again versus energy consumption. So I don't know, 0.8 trillion, 800 billion Close, 0.6, so less than half. And what that means is that just during my lifetime, we've more than doubled the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in the world. 
And that shows you just. (laughs) (laughs) How much of that is you specifically? Like, do you have an idea (laughs) of what your footprint is? It's all me. (laughs) I'm responsible for everything. Correlation Um, is causation. (laughs) 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 So I've been doing a bit of digging on 1982 as well. Say, say, Fraser and I, uh, late night texts about incredibly geeky things. Uh, So we've got two little. Uh, facts here so the first was 1982 was when exxon kind of formally admitted at least internally through an internal memo through their director of theoretical and mathematical sciences uh, roger cohen uh, wrote a memo basically stating that the consensus is that the doubling of atmospheric co2 from its pre-industrial revolution value would result in an average global temperature rise of between uh, well roughly about three degrees so 1.5 degrees either way. So they're acknowledging this even back when you were you were born. So quite shocking to hear that. The other one was that 1982 was when the Thames barrier was opened. I've got a question for you guys. How many times do you think it's been closed since 1982 all the way up to June 2020? How many times did they have to shut it to avoid catastrophic flooding in London? From 1982 up to 2020... I have no idea. No idea. 15? Fraser, you've got to pick a number. Uh, 20. Okay. You're way off. 193 times. <laughs> so we've had these indications then of climate change and some of the potential causes of that for so many years. And it just shows you how much inertia is in the system to get action happening on the ground. Yeah. Becky, you are officially as old as climate denial. That's what we've learned. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's it's not all doom and gloom, though. And I think really that's what this podcast is about. We're about showcasing some of the exciting local climate initiatives that are already underway and to demonstrate that many of these solutions are already within reach. The the reasoning behind it, the, the reason that the name was Local Zero in the first place, is this idea that we talk so often about climate change, climate emergency, and the environment more generally, even energy, we talk about these things as being enormous, international, almost abstract issues that don't necessarily, we can't feel them, we can't see them, maybe there's not anything that we can do about them. When in reality, a big part of the way to resolve these issues and a lot of the most effective work that's happening to tackle these issues is at the local level. As much as climate change affects everyone, so does the work that we do locally have the power to affect and and fight back against the climate emergency as well. So that's the, the rationale behind it for me. I'm cautiously excited. And I'll tell you why the cautiously is because I feel like, especially in the middle of a pandemic, people have got a lot on their minds and they might not be thinking explicitly about climate change and climate solutions. The reason that I'm excited is because I think a lot of the solutions that we're going to be talking about can address other aspects of their lives as well. So coming up through the series, we'll be doing something that focuses on fuel poverty and warmer homes and cleaner transport and and looking at all of these other dimensions that have massive impact on how comfortable people feel in their homes and how they feel about their children's future. You know, I, I remember when I was um, a mum walking around the streets of London with the with my kids in the buggy, I'm really feeling quite worried about the air pollution in the city. And the idea that the vehicles were going to become electric and not have so many emissions was very, very exciting. And so I think there's this real excitement around the opportunity to help harness 
climate solutions to deliver a huge range of different impacts to people's lives. What I hope is this has the opposite effect of how I've how I've felt when I've turned on radio for walking into the kitchen midday or at the end of work, which is one of absolute dread. I want somebody to listen to this and have a spring in their step at the end of it and feel like they can be empowered to do something and they actually can draw a line between those actions and some positive effects, not just for the environment, not just for the economy, but for society as well. We also want you to be as excited as we are and make sure that we're answering all the questions that you have and the concerns that you may feel. So make sure you are following us on Twitter. Use our hashtag local zero and our handle at energyrev underscore UK to send us questions, comments or queries that we can address later in the series. My name's Dave Ray. I'm Professor of Carbon Management and Education at the University of Edinburgh and also direct the Edinburgh Centre for Carbon Innovation. Thank you, Dave, and welcome uh, to Local Zero. I just wanted to, I guess, begin with how are you finding lockdown life, particularly uh, in the context of a new semester? I'm sure you've got your students starting along amongst a host of other uh, responsibilities. Busy. Busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I, I think talking to everyone across the university, it's really, really busy, and that's on the back of, you know, a summer which was really busy for everyone, just preparing and trying to get resources online. So, um, yeah, uh, hard work, but I think I think everyone's just putting in an amazing effort, amazing shift, which is joyous to see. And are you starting to feel the pressure building around COP26? We're, we're nearly a year away. Is that something you're starting to feel now? Yeah, definitely. So, obviously, we're just coming up to a year to go. There's a lot of year to go activities going on absolutely and i think just for the uh the advantage of our listeners um you know some will understand what cop means and cop 26 uh, means others will be asking what on earth we're we talking about so i just from your perspective you know could you explain what cop 26 is and most importantly why should we care about it yeah so cop 26 so cop stands for conference of the parties this is the members of the united nations uh so all the nations of the world getting together to talk about climate change. This happens every year at the Conference of the Parties, uh, apart from this year, where because of COVID, it's been delayed. And this is the 26th. So uh, as you'd imagine, it goes back 25 years. And it's included some major um, discussions about climate change over that time. So some of you might remember things like the Copenhagen Climate uh, Summit. So that was uh, COP15. It was a bit of a disaster in terms of trying to reach a global agreement uh, because climate change is a global challenge. Obviously, all nations need to make commitments and act on them. So I guess the breakthrough of these COPs was COP21 in Paris in 2015, where we got the Paris Agreement on climate change. And that was a huge step forward just in terms of getting some kind of uh, consensus across nations. You could say that was the most important COP. But that's the most important COP until COP26. So COP26 will be in Glasgow in November next year. And that will mark effectively five years since uh, Paris. And the idea of COP26 was for all nations to look at their level of ambition in terms of meeting the Paris climate goals, which is to keep global temperature increase below two degrees with an ambition of keeping it below 1.5. That's in a context of global 
temperature increase already being over a degree. So we've, we've used a lot of that headroom already. So those targets, when you then break them down by all the nations, it's about what commitments we make, how much we are going to cut emissions. And if you add up current commitments, it's nowhere near enough. We're on track for something more like three degrees of warming during this century compared to the, the pre-industrial average. So COP26 is still the best game in town, the best chance we've got of all nations upping their commitments of aligning with those Paris goals and keeping emissions down to a level where we've got a decent chance of meeting the Paris climate goals. Right. So so on that, COP26, November 21, what are you hoping are going to be the big wins? What are the top priorities to take away from COP26 in terms of international agreement? Yeah, it's it's really about net zero. Net zero is this thing that the UK government has signed up to, so it's in law, and the Scottish government and several other nations around the world have set a net zero target. We're still emitting some emissions from some sectors like aviation and food production, but they're balanced by sequestration, by taking the emissions out of the atmosphere, so we hit net zero. For developed nations like ours, we need to get there by 2050 at the latest. So that's the key focus for COP26, is to get the developed world to commit to net zero. So this includes the US committing to net zero by 2050 at the latest. Obviously, aligned to that is also the um, developed world nations, more finance for them to able to be able to adapt to climate change, but also cut their emissions too or limit their emissions and then reduce them. What we need is a lot more ambition, but I think COP26 is going to live or die on whether that net zero by 2050 or earlier is, is something that all the nations get on board with. So Dave, it's in Glasgow, it's in the UK. Are we being ambitious enough in driving forward change and supporting other nations making change? Well, the, the, um, we, we will see quite shortly, I hope, what the UK is going to commit to. Because obviously, having left the European Union, we make our own commitment in terms of our, our emissions. And that comes in the form of a nationally determined contribution. So an NDC that you'll get sick of hearing about. But as we have the joint presidency of the, of the COP with Italy, and like you say, it's going to be in Glasgow, the pressure is on the UK to really show leadership. So Dave, just, just on that, I'm kind of harking back to London 2012 Olympics. Okay, I'm thinking, you know, big focus of that was the impact it would have on average households, on, on your average, you know, your Joe blogs, okay, that they may start to take the spirit of the Olympics and start to change their lifestyle, more walking, more running, more, more cycling. Do you see that being a similar COP26 effect, not just in Glasgow and Scotland, but UK-wide? Do you think there's an opportunity for us to capitalise on that? Yeah, there really is. And there's, there's a real danger that we don't, because um, if you've ever been to a COP, they, they feel like a bit of a circus inside. Lots of people with stands giving you badges and T-shirts, and then there's the negotiations uh, in there as well. And then outside, lots of protest tends to be the kind of the three rings of it. But once you're away from that city centre or wherever it's being hosted, the rest of the country often doesn't get very involved in a COP. So there's a real risk that that's, that happens for us. I don't think that will happen simply because climate change awareness in Scotland uh, and the UK is really high. I'm optimistic it's going to be a success. But part of its success won't just be what happens in those two weeks of negotiations. It will be the legacy like we saw with London 2012 in terms of our engagement in the UK with climate change, with our own climate change targets and, and how we uh, work with other nations uh, and what we do in our own homes and our own lives. 
that definitely needs to happen. And certainly I'm seeing signs of it here in Scotland. And like I say, I hope that the same kind of conversations are happening across the UK. So we talked about the the importance of, of national governments setting priorities and, and really having an impact on the international scene and the potential for some of this um, ambition and excitement to overflow into cities. But what do you think cities can do maybe in the lead up to COP? Can they come together? Is there a way for them um, to help address those global zero targets or perhaps play into the ambition that national government can set? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I'm so optimistic is even before COVID and, and with lots of other stuff going on, which could make you think we're not doing enough on climate change, cities, communities are already making big commitments and doing great stuff. So a lot of um, cities already have a net zero commitment, which goes way beyond the national level, so much earlier. And they represent a really powerful voice in terms of understanding that local context. So understanding what issues they're dealing with in terms of employment, in terms of transport, their built environments, the standard of the the homes, the businesses that are there. They're also a really powerful voice to talk from our perspective as their inhabitants in the cities or, or in rural communities like mine, to talk back to central governments and say, look, you've got your net zero target. That's all well and good. But there's this barrier in the way and there's this barrier in the way. You know, we want an alternative to sitting in our petrol driven car, for instance, to get to work. But actually, you're not providing that, you know, in terms of public transport or cheap access to electric vehicles, whatever it is. So cities, local authorities, they have a really, really crucial role in this. And a lot of them, like I say, have have set targets which are really ambitious. If we're going to I suppose this overused phrase of bring everyone with us on the journey to net zero. So really address climate change in a way which is sustainable, which is just. Then you can't just do it from a national government perspective. You need the cities, you need the local authorities, you need the local communities to be involved, have a voice and act. So, yeah, the more of that, the better. And do you think they've got enough of a voice at the moment? Is government hearing them? Actually, what we're seeing, which is brilliant, is a real push from so many sectors of society, different cities, saying to the UK government, for your nationally determined contribution, be ambitious, lead the way, really push us. And, you know, don't take the the, the kind of um, the easy way out, because actually um, that doesn't help anyone. This is a once in a lifetime or multi-lifetime opportunity for all of us in the UK and Scotland. For me, it's the biggest climate conference there'll ever be in terms of the most important. I think it will set the future of our climate for decades to come, probably centuries. So we cannot afford to get it wrong. Thanks, Dave. That's absolutely fab. You've given us so much to think about. Uh, Contextualised COP26 and really given us some hope and excitement for the future. So thank you very much for joining our show. Up next, we're going to introduce a key part of the climate change jigsaw. This is the people, or indeed the organisation, that puts the science backbone into climate action. And that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. My name is Renee Van Diemen. I work for Working Group 3 of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and I work within the science team. I'm a senior scientist there. So for those who aren't in the know... What is the IPCC? So the IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. As the title suggests, it's an intergovernmental body. So there's 195 member states that are part of the IPCC. 
really its main purpose is to provide regular assessments of the scientific basis of climate change. So this means its impacts and future risks and really what we can do about it. So what can we do to adapt to these impacts or what could we do to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions so that some of these impacts won't occur? Um, and the main audience for the IPCC assessments are policymakers. So the main intention and objective is to provide governments at all levels, so not just national governments, but also subnational governments or local governments with scientific information that they can then use to develop climate policies. And how has the work of the IPCC fed into previous COPs? So we've got COP26 coming up in November next year, been delayed. How how are these how is this evidence, this synthesis of evidence and these reports meant to inform what goes on there and, and obviously subsequently? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Matt. Um also I think it's really important to recognize you uh, jumped on the word synthesize here. So the IPCC doesn't actually conduct its own research. It's really an assessment of all of the available scientific literature that's out there. So we have thousands of scientists that volunteer their time to assess what's known and what's out there in the scientific literature. And the first report from the IPCC actually came out in 1990, and it informed the establishment of the United Nations Convention uh, Framework um, Convention on Climate Change, so the UNFCCC. Uh, and then we had the second assessment report, which came out in 1995, and that then provided the scientific information leading up to the Kyoto Protocol. And now I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. We had the fifth assessment report. So this one was our latest one. It came out in 2013 and 2014, and that provided the scientific input for the Paris Agreement. Strong scientific evidence should really be the basis of all decision making. And that's what the IPCC provides, that scientific assessment that's rooted in the underlying literature about what we know about climate change and what we can do about it. So I think there's an increasing recognition also in the scientific literature that it's not just national governments or international cooperation that will get the job done on climate change. There's a very big role to play with regards to local actors or subnational actors. So really anyone that's not a national body, this could be city level governments, or community-led initiatives, or even the private sector. And the scientific literature around this is also growing. So the IPCC has actually said that we're going to produce uh, an entire special report just focusing on cities. It does show that the science is really moving on this and increasingly being taken into account. Rene, thank you so much. You've covered a tremendous amount of ground. <laughs> That's a huge job Rene and colleagues have got to do, uh, rather than... than than us. What they produce is absolutely critical to inf- providing that evidence base to inform action. Certainly for me, it really it really brought to life just how much evidence is out there and what an important job they do at synthesizing all of that evidence and bringing it together in one place so we can start to see how this fits together, not just in terms of um, the climate science, but actually what can be done about that and what can be done to to mitigate against climate change and provide pathways uh, for action to, to deliver net zero. As we know then, COP26 is due to take place in Glasgow in November 2021. Along with stark implications for global climate policy, what does hosting COP mean for the net zero ambitions of Glasgow? Here's Fraser. COP26 will see some of the most high-profile leaders and organisations descend on Glasgow to try and solve the world's biggest problem, the climate emergency. But what does that mean for the city itself? 
Before coming on to record today's show, I took some time to chat with two people who are leading the way on climate action in Glasgow. While coming from very different backgrounds, both are very much looking forward to the city being in the COP26 spotlight. So my name is Councillor Angus Miller. I am Chair of Glasgow City Council's Environment, Sustainability and Carbon Reduction Committee. My name is Erin Curtis. I'm 16 years old. I volunteer with Glasgow Youth Strikes to help coordinate the events in Glasgow that we do. It feels like an opportunity in every sense of the word. It's an opportunity to put the city on, on the map globally in terms of kind of signalling our ambition to be a, a leader in terms of you know climate action carbon reduction and to be recognised for some of the work that has gone on today both in Glasgow and in Scotland more broadly. The whole point of COP is to have a sort of you know place for people to come together and look for solutions to this imminent issue. It's an opportunity for us to make sure that we are listened to and it's also an opportunity for the people who maybe be centre stage, like the politicians and world leaders coming together to make sure that they are taking everybody's opinion into account. There's also a great deal of opportunity to develop international partnerships because as much as we as a city you know, want to be taking action at a very local level and, and in everybody's daily lives, there's, there's clearly so much that, that we can learn from other cities around the world. Glasgow is a very diverse place. That gives us a really exciting opportunity for COP because it means that there are so many people who are going to be able to sort of come together and give all sorts of opinions. It's not just going to be one set thing for every person, of course, so you've got to listen to people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of places, all sorts of like upbringings. Now, I'm not an old guy, but I wouldn't fall necessarily into the same young category. <laughs> but I think a lot of the conversations that I have, people who are maybe a little bit detached from activism mm-hmm. full stop, yeah. think that it's about protesting and shouting rather than solutions mm. and having a conversation. Yeah. Is that something that obviously as an organiser you try to be aware of, to be more solutions focused, to be more discussion focused mm. rather than just shouting about problems? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, kicking up a fuss is always going to be an important part of like what we do, but this needs to come down to finding solutions as best as possible to this issue, to climate change. There's this image of Glasgow as being a city in kind of post-industrial decline. One of the things that, you know, I, I want to see is, is is more of a discussion around that kind of experience of poverty and inequality, for example. The green agenda has historically been seen as a middle class preoccupation. It's been seen as something that is it speaks to a narrow set of issues that, you know, don't concern the vast majority of people and certainly in left to centre politics. So we need to recast that that conversation and recast um, climate action and sustainability as a social justice issue because we know it is. When you talk about bringing communities with you, especially in underneath the sort of the Scottish government umbrella of the just transition, of now focusing on these inequalities and trying to in some way rectify them, treating energy, climate, environment as a justice issue. Do you see a way for Glasgow City Council to maybe try and foreground some of those communities when COP comes to town? Yeah, I would absolutely want to, you know, to make sure that those communities, you know, that we're talking about are are there um, in the foreground and that we're talking about the impact and that we're talking about the opportunities for people to step up locally and in their own lives and on a community scale. Do you think COP can stimulate more effective climate action in Glasgow? And on the other side of that, do you think Glasgow, 
can bring something specific to COP. It looks very hypocritical to, to you know, host an event of such importance and of such, you know, worldly importance. COP26 is going to be one of the most important COPs there has been and will be, particularly because obviously we're at such a pivotal point, but also with coronavirus and everything that's happened, how do we come back from that? How do we rebuild in a, in a, greener, in a greener future? That was Erin Curtis from Glasgow Youth Strike and Angus Miller of Glasgow Council there talking to Fraser earlier. So as you can see, COP26 is being seen by many as a call to arms, particularly here in Glasgow. We've spent quite a bit of time in this first episode of Local Zero looking at what COP means for policy. Next up, what does it mean for the energy industry? I'm Sam Gardner. I'm the head of climate change and sustainability for Scottish Power but I'm also chair of the Edinburgh Climate Commission, which is a new initiative set up in Edinburgh. It's all about how do we work with partners across the city to accelerate delivery on the ground in Edinburgh so that we fulfil the ambition to be net zero by 2030, which of course is the same ambition that Glasgow has set itself. Well, very different perspectives there coming from uh, Scottish Power, but then also from bringing together the voice of uh, Edinburgh City and and their ambitions. So do you see lots of different organisations and people being responsible for driving this change, coming together and driving this change, or is one part of society taking the lead? So I think the, the kind of glib and easy answer is to say we all have a responsibility. And it's true, but it's not an equal responsibility. Clearly, the transition that's needed requires leadership from certain sectors and in particular the public sector from government from the Scottish government from the UK government and from local government has to be able to put in place the pathways that enable behavior change it has to put in place the pathways that enable and incentivize investment and innovation in new technologies and unless we get that pathway mapped out for us it's an incredibly frustrating experience for communities for individuals for small businesses to try and pursue a transition when they're coming up against institutional or economic barriers to that. So, yes, we all have a responsibility to play, absolutely, be it here in my home and how I heat my home and what I do and how I travel. But those with the greatest power have the greatest responsibility. I just wondered where you see that kind of relationship, the conduit, I guess, between big business and local communities. Well, it's a good question. I think big businesses are present and Scottish Power certainly as a renewable energy generator is present across the UK. It has a relationship to our customers. It has a relationship to the communities in which we generate electricity. It has a relationship to a huge supply chain. And as such, we have a responsibility to work with all of those stakeholders, all of those partners, both in communicating the necessity of tackling climate change, but also communicating the benefits And ensuring that those benefits are realized, basically, driving change across supply chains, building new opportunities, working with the education, the tertiary sector to support enterprises and apprenticeships that will bring new people into the sector. So, yes, big business is by definition big and can seem somewhat detached and removed. But when you look at what we do as a business and how we operate, it actually takes us right down to the ground and how we interact with with communities, with households, and we have a really big responsibility to do that in a way that is going to accelerate the response to climate change. And you mentioned there the third sector, and of course, you know, your your previous role was with WWF. Are there any lessons that big business such as Scottish Power and other companies can learn from 
third sector NGOs about how they can engage with local communities to, to you know, really try and drive this kind of local action forward? I'm sure there are. You know, my, my experience in an NGO was as a national campaigning NGO, not one that presumed to kind of have the rich understanding that many community groups do about how to advocate for change within your within your local community. I think, again, it might sound glib, and, but you actually have to listen to what it is that people are saying at the community. In Scotland, we've had some great initiatives like the Climate Challenge Fund, which has run across Scotland, which has been a, a resource that communities can bid into to drive forward initiatives within their area that are identified as having a need and having a mandate within that particular location in order to do something that's going to further their their community but also to tackle climate change the transition that we need to do to get to net zero has to be a coming together of the enthusiasm the energy the understanding that communities have about the nature of change that's needed in their area matched with national frameworks and i think one of the things that's going to become increasingly apparent is that we don't have a one-size-fits-all approach to net zero we don't even have a one-size-fits-all approach within a single city. We need solutions that are bespoke, and we need local government to be resourced and empowered to kind of make those decisions and work with the infrastructure providers, like the network infrastructure providers, to produce solutions that are fit for purpose for the type of housing and for the yeah the nature of those particular cities. So let's talk a bit more about the solutions because you've mentioned a few things around like housing and heating and so on. But what do you actually think these changes are going to look like on the ground for um, at the city level, at the household level and even at the industry level? So in some instances, the changes won't be hugely visible. You will still have a warm home. You'll still be able to heat your home. What's happened is that the how you heat your home has changed uh, or what is used more technically to heat your home has changed. We have to transition from a, a reliance on natural gas, which is obviously a fossil fuel that we burn away in our in our homes. That transition isn't one that's going to change the nature of your your house or how you live your life. You'll you'll still have a warm home, but you're going to we are going to have to find models and policies and incentive frameworks that motivate individuals and households and communities to kind of take that step, that build demand, that provide the signals for industries such as the power sector that I'm in to look and uh, see the uh, see the opportunity around electrification. We need to be doing, on average, across the UK, about 4,000 heat pump installations a day if we're to be on track for net zero by 2050 across the UK. We're nowhere near that. And that's, I guess, that's perhaps one of the biggest things that's that confronts us, isn't the, um, the technology. It's the pace at which we have to deploy this technology. So who's going to push that forwards? How are we going to get this happening faster? So... That acceleration that we need to see has to be driven by a clear pathway, and that pathway has to be signalled by the UK and Scottish governments. And the Committee on Climate Change made a call on the Scottish government just very recently that it has the opportunity to be the first nation to set out a pathway to net zero. And that's absolutely what's needed in the first instance. We need to have clarity as to whether or not national governments, what role do they see for electrification versus hydrogen? What role do they see for demand reduction? How are we going to enable the fabric improvement to our properties that we need to see to get them ready. So, you know, in terms of building blocks, how do we get to a level of demand that equates to the pace we need to see? In the first instance, we need a pathway, we need a policy framework, and we simply don't have that at the moment. And how does industry play into that? So what's Scottish Power's role in all of this? In the context of COP, 
we have a particularly, I think, a really important role. We are part of Glasgow, a really integral part of the city and want to play our part as being a host. We want COP to be successful for Scotland, for Glasgow and for the world. And we will do all we can to make sure that happens. We will have a full programme of initiatives and events and try and just be a convening space, if you like, as well uh, during COP to uh, to try and ensure that positive legacies are driven out of COP. We can't place the the success of COP entirely in the hands of the political process. We need to lock in commitments from corporate Scotland. So we will be working with others across Scotland to try and do that. We'll be working with others across the UK in order that we can play our part in driving forward that net zero economy that we want to see and the net zero future that we have to see if we're to tackle climate change. That's brilliant. Thank you, Sam. Very interesting to hear the perspective from from cities and, and also industry and how we can work together in delivering against this net zero commitments that we, let's face it, have to deliver on. So we've just heard from Sam all about COP26 and what that means for the energy sector, for cities. We've had some great guests on the show already. So what does all of that mean? Fraser? I think some of the big takeaways from the interviews, and now everyone obviously brought their own expertise, which was amazing, because I feel like they picked up on one or two similar themes and ideas. Specifically, one of the big takeaways, especially from Dave and Sam, but also from uh, from Angus and Erin and Renee as well, is the spirit of collaboration. So a big lesson from this is that everyone involved, whether you're within the energy sector, policy, activism, whatever it might be, or academia, there's a a constant understanding that there needs to be a large degree of collaboration to make these solutions a reality. I think collaboration is absolutely key, isn't it? And although governments have got a clear role to play in COP in terms of setting the agenda, and particularly for the UK government this year, um, you know, co-hosting the the COP presidency, got a real role to play not only in the UK's ambitions, but also trying to encourage other countries to be more ambitious. At the same time... We were hearing, I think, a lot about how cities can not only help deliver on that ambition, but maybe even be more ambitious and encourage the government to set more ambitious targets in and of themselves. I think that's an interesting one. I mean, Edinburgh's a really interesting example for that as well. You know, is it it's horse and cart question, isn't it? And which is which? Who's leading who? Is is it is it COP leading national leading cities or is it cities leading national leading COP? And for me, this this link between the levels, these tiers, almost like bits of string, you know, you pull pull here and there's a ripple effect up and down. It's fascinating to understand where the cities fit in here. Are they delivering or leading? Well, and also industry. I mean, we heard from, from Sam about Scottish power and, and the role that big industry is playing. I mean, just think back five years, five, six years, you wouldn't necessarily have seen industry playing in, in quite the same way, maybe even fighting change, whereas now they're at the forefront of change. So thinking about the role that they can play in helping drive action forward as well. Something that all of them picked up on absolutely was leadership too, which I think when Matt talks about the horse and the cart, it might not be the worst thing that everyone sees themselves as having a leadership role to play. Everyone wants to drive that innovation and drive that change, which I think might only be a good thing. And one thing that Dave picked up on was he said that COP26 is the most important COP, potentially the most important conference style event ever. Do you guys agree with this? Possibly one of the most important for the UK, seeing as it's hosted here. And and like we were hearing, it's got the 
potential to trickle action over and really, you know, get to people on the ground and see people actually engaging with it, which might not happen when it's happening overseas. So, you know, I can see why that's the case for the UK, but I think it feels like we're at so many tipping points and and the so many big issues coming together um, and starting to see how we can really create synergies in action and create a pathway for rapid change. And of course, one of the biggest issues at the moment is the US election, which at this very moment, we don't know the result of. I was hearing a collective sigh of relief from various policymakers, NGOs, when COP was actually, COP26 was delayed for a year, because there was a feeling that actually now we may know who the president is and can start to build that international effort around that new order. Um, or we may have the old order still in place. Who knows? And I think mo- moving on to another issue, I just wanted to point to what Rene was saying about the, the connection between subnational layers. So when we saw the US leave the Paris uh, Agreement, and we saw states and, in fact, cities start to take a leadership role. I think, for me, that set something in motion, which maybe rippled across the Atlantic and saw some of the cities like Edinburgh, Glasgow, Leeds and others start to take a more of an, you know, a leadership role. And this, this idea that you could connect. You know when you enter a new town or a city and it says, welcome to wherever, and it says, twinned with? I often think in my head, you know, is, is that something that could happen with climate action? Could we see... Glasgow twinned with Boston on on these issues. So we're coming to the end of the episode and like all good professional radio shows do, I want to introduce what I hope will become a recurring segment. This recurring segment will be called Future or Fiction. Within this segment, I'll present either a tested technology or a new technology idea that I've just invented. And Matt and Becky will decide if they think it's real, if they think it's the future, or if they think I've just made it up or pulled it from some kind of fantasy novel or film. So the first ever future or fiction is space-based solar. In a space-based solar power system, fleets of robot satellites with mirrors could reflect solar radiation onto solar panels, which can then be beamed down to Earth. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? So you're talking mirrors, satellite mirrors, beaming the sun onto a satellite orbiting planet Earth. (laughs) Yeah, we've heard of floating wind turbines. I mean, this is a step further, right? Solar radiation onto the mirror, mirror onto the solar panel, solar panel to Earth. Sounds expensive, Fraser, this. <laughs> we, well, we've already got concentrating solar panel, uh, solar power, you know, on planet Earth. I'm uh, not sure why we're going to put it into space. So um, I, I'm out. No, I think it, I think that's fiction. Yeah, I can, I can see the uh, I can see the, uh, the idea behind, you know, maybe not getting through the atmosphere and, and having a better chance of concentrating the solar rays. But getting that power from uh, from a satellite down to Earth. I mean, I have enough trouble trying to charge my iPhone on one of those wireless charging pads. <laughs> now I'm with Matt. Fiction. <laughs> you both say fiction. Yeah, fiction completely. Both going with fiction. It is, in fact, the future. In 2015, 2015, all those years ago, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency successfully converted 1.8 kilowatts of energy into microwaves and beamed it a distance of 50 metres through the atmosphere. 
so we can beam allegedly solar power Brilliant. that way across distances. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> Every day's a scoop with you, Fraser. <laughs> that is from the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency. I can link it. I can link it. I haven't just made it up. So thanks for being with us for our very first episode of Local Zero. Just some housekeeping before we go. We're going to be releasing episodes fortnightly on Thursdays. So every other Thursday, you're going to get a brand new episode of Local Zero. That's the three of us talking about climate change and smart local energy right into your podcast feed. So check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, really anywhere that you get your podcasts. Subscribe, spread the word about what we're doing and get in touch with us if you've got any questions that we can answer for you in future episodes. You can tweet us um, using the hashtag localzero and handle at energyrev underscore UK. Next time, we're looking at how COVID has affected the road to net zero and the role that local climate action can play in the recovery from this pandemic. So thank you very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Bye, all. Bye, bye, bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.